How did large numbers of Syrians and Lebanese end up in West Africa a hundred years ago? How did West Africans end up in Syria and Lebanon? Our guest today breaks it all down. Join us for the conversation. Hello and welcome back to the second episode of Middle East 2.0, a podcast from the Middle East Center of the University of Pennsylvania. My name is John Gasvinian. I'm the executive director of the Middle East Center, and I am your host for Middle East 2.0. We are joined by our uh, very special co-host, the one and only Brian, the IT guy. Say hello, Brian. Hello, John. Brian, you have to sound more excited for these podcasts. We talked about this. (laughs) I still don't know why I'm here, but anyway, continue. Uh, Brian, of course, is the star of the show. As everyone who has listened to the first episode knows, all three people who listened will know. Uh, He is our secret weapon, our special source. Uh, Brian is not joining us from his garage anymore this time, uh, from an undisclosed location in the suburbs of Philadelphia. He has come into the office today, and that's why you're hearing sirens in the background. Yeah. Uh, They knew you were were coming, Brian. Yeah. Um, so, Brian, today I'm really excited because obviously last time we had an amazing ho- uh, guest, right? We had Jamal Elias, and he taught us all about Islam and trucks and uh, decorating trucks and visual imagery in Islam. I learned a lot. I feel like you learned some things too. Yeah. Uh, today we have someone equally as exciting that I'm also really, really thrilled to have. She's going to be talking to us about something you wouldn't expect to hear maybe on a Middle East 2.0 podcast. We like to, you know, kind of mix things up surprisingly. She's going to be talking to us about West Africa. And uh, those of you who are probably already like, you know, you know turning off your, uh, your radios going, no, I don't want to hear about it. This is supposed to be a Middle East podcast. Keep an open mind because we are going to be talking about the, very, the many, very interesting ways that West Africa connects to Lebanon and Syria uh, historically. She's a historian. Her name is Dahlia Elzane. She's one of our uh, uh, PhD students here at Penn. She's studying history. Uh, and she's got a really cool topic that connects... Um, what they call the tirailleurs senegalais, the uh, sort of like West African snipers, I guess. I actually want to ask her about a good translation for tirailleurs. And uh, Lebanese-Syrian migrants into West Africa in the 1920s and 1930s. What do you know about that, Brian? Are you excited about this? Where's your mind going? Well, I had a small talk with you about it. You know, you gave me a bit of history of it, and it sounded interesting. I had no idea there was connections between West Africa and, you know, the Middle East. Um, yeah, but Brian, you have a special connection to Senegal, don't you? Should I get into that already? I mean... Well, there's a little race called the Dakar Rally, and it right. goes from Paris to Dakar, you know, every year. And, uh, you know, we've discussed in the past, I'm interested in motorsport, and uh, I thought we could talk about that. Yeah. I think, I think Dahlia is the perfect person to be talking to us about that. She doesn't know it yet, but her expertise is going to extend far beyond what she ever expected. Anyway, enough chit-chat from us. No one actually tunes into this podcast to hear from you and me. In fact, I'm not even sure anyone tunes into this podcast, but if they do, it's not because they want to hear from you and me. They want to hear from our amazing guests. And we have an amazing guest today. I am so pleased to welcome her. Uh, welcome to the show, Dahlia Zane. Thank you. Thank you, John and Brian. It's really great to be here. and. 
I really appreciate the invitation, um, especially, um, you know, following uh, Professor Jamal Elias. It's a very tough act to follow, considering I, I am not part of the motorcycle club, and there's probably very little I can tell you about the Dakar rally. But I can, you know, maybe talk about some other things like the Lebanese hanging out in Senegal and Senegalese in Lebanon. I'm really excited to hear you talk about all of these things. Um, how's the PhD going? It's going. Yeah. <laughs> what is your advice? What is the one thing you wish someone had told you when you started this thing? Oh gosh, the one thing. This is your chance to give advice to all those happy, innocent people who are starting their PhDs. Wow. Um, the one thing, one thing that's tough. I mean, probably don't do it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. I think it's, um, you know, it takes a long time. You really have to uh, kind of be in it for the long haul. So I think that. Kind of um, like a Dakar rally. Yes, <laughs> kind of like a Dakar rally. It's certainly a marathon, not a sprint. So I think my my advice would be um, don't get a PhD just because you don't know what else to do with your life. Mm-hmm. Just only do it if you really are committed to, you know, a topic or a subject or, you know, have, have like real deep passion for something that you're invested in studying. You, John, you went through this. I'm sure there's some advice that you No, I did it because I had nothing better to do with my life. Truly. (laughs) truly. I mean, some of us actually have nothing better to do with our lives. Um, Continues. Exactly. Brian Brian, Brian knows this very well. But I actually have a question for you, Dahlia, and I got to ask this because when I first met you about about three years ago now, if I'm not mistaken, right? You came into our office. Yeah. And you were a newly minted PhD student. You're about to start here um, at Penn. And um, you were going to work on, because you're a historian, right. and, you were, and you're a historian of the 20th century, and you were going to work on educational curricula in the yes. 1960s in, I think, Egypt and Iran and Saudi yeah. Arabia and something like that. Yes. So <laughs> I, and in fact, if I'm not mistaken, we even gave you a flash fellowship here to learn Persian <laughs> so that you could do this. So yeah. I mean, I have to ask, like, has all is, is that was all of that money and funding from the federal government, from the American taxpayer, by the way, has that all gone com- to complete waste? Is that what you're telling me? Like, we just to help you learn Persian for no apparent reason? <laughs> what happened? What? Why have you changed your subject so dramatically? I have changed my subject so dramatically. It's it's. You have a really good recollection, by the way. Um, <sighs> you probably remember better than I do what I. Uh, you know, came here to do initially. <laughs> I think the moral of the story is that um, your project will likely change, uh, and that as yeah, as time goes on, what you think you might have been interested in. Um, well, a few things happen. The first, uh, no, so first the floss. Persian is a very useful language to know, mm. although. Uh, so I hear. <laughs> And uh, you know who knows it might it might come back into the the, the project somehow or another project. Um, you do but, know that you're going to be paying us back for the Flash Fellowship. If oh gosh! Right? No. <laughs> um. Well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's okay. You don't actually have to. But there are. We can talk about that off air. Well. 
How, how will say this? How did you settle on your current project? I mean, the That's what we're doing. it's a big jump so, from what you were doing before. What got you interested yeah. in part of the world? Yeah, it is. It is a big jump. So I think, um, so I, I did kind of a, a, you know, my first year research paper was looking at the educational curriculum in the United Arab Republic, which was the, um, the union between Egypt and Syria from 1958 to 1961. Um, and I had found, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, really interesting um, education books from that time period. Um, and I had gone to Egypt for it too. Um, and that was great. I mean, I'm still very much invested in, in, and interested in educational curricula and, um, and maybe, you know, the next project will dive in, we'll come back to that for sure. Um, but what, what happened is that a, a friend of mine, who is also a graduate student, um, you all probably know her, Razan Idris, she's also in my um, cohort. She, we were in a class together with um, one of my committee members and co-advisor, Professor Sheikh Babu. Um, and, you know, we were, you know, trying to sort of figure out, I was trying to figure out what to write my second year paper on. And the topic... Um, of the course was um, religious encounters in West Africa. And, um, you know, I had always known that there was uh, quite a, uh, a large Lebanese community living in West Africa. Um, so Razan actually sent me this photo by um, Margaret Burke White, she's a photographer, um, of three tirailleurs Senegalais or um, West African soldiers, or also some, you know, the translation would be like sharpshooters. Um, mm. They're actually not all from Senegal. That's it's sort of a misnomer. They're sort of from all over West Africa, but three of them in um, in Syria um, in the interwar period. So this really just piqued my interest, and so I kind of like went down a rabbit hole and talked to Azan some more, and then talked to uh, Professor Babu, and then you know discovered there's this really this this period where these West African soldiers were stationed and living in greater Syria and Lebanon and Syria as part of the French colonial army during the interwar period um, between World War I and World War II and were, um, you know, there to kind of maintain the French mandate and sort of keep order. But, you know, it's this really, and at the same time, uh, these Lebanese migrants were uh, migrating to French West Africa because of the opportunities that that provided under this, you know, realm of French empire. So it was just too juicy. I mean, I couldn't give it up. It was just so interesting. So I found myself moving back in time and sort of moving geographically. Honestly, it was just, it, it was too good not to sort of dive further in. Um, as yeah, that's sort of where where it took me and kind of where I went, how I ended up here, working on you know Lebanese and Senegal and just to clarify for folks who aren't too much into the history of it, you're saying like there was you know France had a big empire at the time you told you built the French mandate and you're like shuffling people between these these areas. In in terms of their uh, so the French Empire. Um, you know, was very, uh, had this, you know, heavy presence in West Africa and also in some of the Caribbean islands and also in Southeast Asia, what was known there as 
known as French Indochina. And uh, the mandate period is basically the period after World War I during the Treaty of Versailles. Well, it sort of predates that. Um, so this will be very relevant to our Middle East listeners, whoever you are out there. So in, a, a, you know, like a mini history lesson, I hope all of you don't, you know, fall asleep now. But in, in you're going uh, to start, start talking about Sykes Picot now. Of course, of course. <laughs> we have to talk about Sykes Picot. Brian, everything goes back to Sykes Picot. So there, there's this. Pico. Yeah, Pico. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, he's yeah. thinking of he's thinking of yeah, Pennsylvania Electric Company. Oh no, not not that Pico. Okay. <laughs> no, but yeah, everything does yeah. actually go back to Pico in the end. If you <laughs> for the Philly listeners out there, it does go back to Pico. The other Pico, P E C O. The Pico we're talking about is P I C O T. Pico, and Pico. So um, Mark Sykes uh, and. Georges Pico, what was his first name? Um, John, do you remember? Oh my goodness, I think it was Francois Georges Pico, but I. I yeah, uh, there was a Georges. I all this out as well. <laughs> There's a Georges. Yeah, well, so um, they, uh, um, Sykes and, and Pico were a British and a French administrator who made, uh, who sort of negotiated in secret um, during the war, kind of. Um, uh, like betting that the Ottomans would lose and that they would win and, and basically breaking up what they, what were Ottoman lands at the time uh, into different, aha. So it was Francois-Georges Picot. So I remember Georges, I just forgot our friend Francois. <laughs> it was French. They have so many of those like combined names. Anyway, so um, they basically agreed amongst themselves that, um, France would, uh, if the war is won, uh, sort of take on Lebanon and Syria, and that Britain would take Iraq, um, Palestine, and uh, Transjordan, uh, you know, aka Jordan. So, um, and, you know, at the time, Egypt was like a British protectorate. Egypt sort of has its like own separate status and relationship with the Brits. But so basically, I mean, in, in like a very short summary, simplified, um, that was the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And that more or less came into effect after the end of World War I. Um, and it came into effect in this form of mandates, which was sort of like a way, which was kind of given this guise that these countries were supposed to sort of be under the tutelage of France and Britain until they could kind of organize themselves um, to rule themselves, right? But it was really a guise for colonialism, aka also known as colonialism. Uh, and uh, and so Syria so, and what, what became Syria and Lebanon are under the French, basically French mandate from the 1920s, 30s and 40s. And that's the period that you look at. Um, exactly. And that's how these Senegalese, these West African yeah. fighters end up in what we now know as Syria and Lebanon. Was there right. free, free travel between these places? You know, Aha. They... Yeah. So to a certain extent, there was. So you have now, uh, you know, we're in the 1920s, 240s, as you know, John said. Uh, so the period I look at is the interwar years. Although the, you know, the French mandate doesn't really totally end until 1946. I mean, after, you know, the last troops leave in 1946. 
Um, so we have this sort of, you know, 20 year ish period where both West Africa and um, Lebanon and Syria are under this framework of um, greater French empire. Um, and that, to a certain extent, allows a certain type of movement. And for the tirailleurs senegalais, so let me just say a little bit about the tirailleurs because it's, it's really interesting. So um, this is not sort of specific to the French, but Britain did this too, um, is having these like robust colonial armies, basically recruiting um, from the people whom they colonized as their soldiers. Um, and so in the French army, uh, the French, uh, they had tirailleurs senegalais, which were mostly from their West African, from the from West Africa, from different parts of West Africa. Um, and they also had um, North Africans from their, uh, uh, how could I not mention, of course, a huge part of the French empire was in North Africa, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, um, which also pretty much covered around the same time as, as West Africa from, you know, uh, late into the 19th century into I mean, they were in Algeria until like the 60s because of, you know, the Battle of Independence. But um, so uh, they had soldiers from North Africa, from Indochina, Cambodia, Vietnam and Laos today and from um, West Africa. And these soldiers actually fought in World War One and World War Two, like in the front lines, like they would put them on the trenches. And one of the sort of, you know, untold stories of the world wars is this like huge role actually that these um, non-French, non-white soldiers, foreign soldiers played in actually winning the war. Um, there's some like really good films about this that, you know, yeah, I remember they mentioned this in the, the young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Do you remember that spinoff of the uh, Indiana Jones movies? My first time ever. We're, we're, too, we're too young, Brian. Sorry. Oh, 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 oh. It, was, it was the eighties kids, maybe early nineties, you know, uh, Anyway, I mean, do you think it'd be possible back then that someone could have ridden a motorcycle across the entire French Empire of Africa and the Middle East? <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe they could have from from they could have from like West Africa into North Africa. Uh, maybe made it all the way into Egypt. I mean, you know, it's interesting to think about travel at that time. Of course, like. Uh, this was also the time at the end of the 19th century of like when steam and print, especially steam, it became um, easier and faster to travel by ship. Um, and so uh, it facilitated the movement of um, a lot of people. I mean, of course, you had to have some money to be able to afford the, the, the ferry, the passage. But it's interesting that Lebanese people... Um, who were migrating to Africa, you know, for many people, Dakar was supposed to be a stopover. Like at the time, America was like the place to go. The Americas, both North and South, um, was the place to migrate. And sometimes, uh, you know, they, some people thought that they were in America when they landed in Dakar. Others, uh, you know, ended up there, had to stay for different reasons, you know, different health requirements, they ran out of money, um, sort of, you know, different reasons kept them there, but it actually led to this like burgeoning community um, 
that formed in uh, in French West Africa. And then some of them used it as an opportunity to like move, you know, to go to Ghana, to other places in British controlled West Africa. It's, it's interesting you say it. it's kind of like a, I guess you'd call it like a melting pot or like a, a hub formed in Dakar that hadn't been there before. I mean, it, it really starts to make sense then. I mean, I hate to go back to the motor store for it. Actually, I love going back to talk about it. But that <laughs> Paris to Dakar would make sense, right? Like these two poles, you know, between Paris, which is this, I guess, the center of French culture, to like, this other Paris, you know, in the colonies. I don't know. Would that make sense? You know. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, and uh, and some would argue that you know, Dakar, that the influence of Dakar on Paris's French culture is as much as Paris's influence on Dakar, and vice versa. I mean, the way we think, you know, we sort of talk about like the the center and periphery or like the metropole and the empire and, and try and kind of break these boundaries or ideas that like things were coming one way that like the metropole or, you know, that the center was somehow the, like a top down, like that they were the only ones sort of influencing the periphery, but really looking at it as a dialectic that Dakar was as much a center as Paris as Paris that makes sense. <laughs> I think what's interesting about your work, Dali, is that you actually are taking Paris out of the equation to some extent, right? Which is, yes. kind of, I mean, you know, you have, of course, we think of things like, you know, Paris, Dakar, Paris, Dakar rally and so on. But what's interesting is that you are looking at these two communities that both happen to have this relationship with Paris, but also had a relationship with each other. And that, that those relationships haven't always been studied as much by historians. You know, yeah. and I think what's, yeah, and, and I think what particularly sorry is was striking to me just you know kind of reading the little bit that I have about your work is that um, you have it's like it's you have different things going in different directions. It's like you have you know I was thinking of sort of that that sort of uh, conceptualization of guns and butter, right? Where you had, it seems like you have guns going in one direction and butter going in the other, right? I mean you've you've got you know from West Africa you got these uh, these tirailleurs, these you know, sharpshooters going to enforce colonial order in Syria um, and becoming, you know, instruments of kind of national security and coercion, you know, imperial kind of, um, you know, the part of the coercive apparatus, right? Guns. And in the other direction, you have these Syrians, Lebanese going to West Africa, looking for economic opportunities, trade, making money. Um, it's a very different kind of relationship. And I kind of wonder how that plays out on the ground in both places. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks. That's like <laughs> it's a really good way of classifying it. Probably better than I could explain it myself. <laughs> but um, you know, you're welcome. Like We're glad you came on the show. <laughs> that's what I'm hoping to do with this um, project is precisely look at what doesn't often get looked at is like the the cross colonial relationship between these peoples with when we like put the French to the side, right? Um, when we sort of take Paris out of the equation and look at, well, well, what was happening in Dakar and in Beirut and in Damascus and how are these people interacting with each other? Because, uh, you know, it's like the, the horizontal study of um, cross-colonial peoples that were under the same imperial framework. Because like, you know, Brian pointed out in a sense, what we always get is this, like, the relationship between, like, France and its colonies, Paris and Dakar, like, 
looking always at like the center takes up so much space, but um, that's exactly what I'm asking. Like, what if we really look at it from below, from like the everyday people who are living under empire, um, but maybe not necessarily had uh, um, a re- like a direct relationship. Of course, everyone had some type of relationship to the French colonial order. It was, you know, impossible to avoid. But, you know, sometimes it was subversive. At other times, it was accommodating. Sometimes it was coexisting. You know, it just, it really varied like over time and space. And people used the empire for different reasons and for their own means or to climb up social ladders. So when we start looking at these relationships, it starts to get like interesting and complicated because especially there were, um, you know, different racial constructions of Mm -hmm. each other. Like here you have Lebanese um, Lebanese Syrians uh, coming to Senegal that's ruled by a, a French imperial order and the French had very specific ideas about race and like racial ordering um, and the a Lebanese in Senegal would be treated differently than a Lebanese in Lebanon um, a Lebanese in Senegal for the French were seen like higher in the racial order they they saw them closer to white, not white, not French. And especially, I don't mean to interrupt, but I mean, also, especially this, this, the Lebanese that are coming, I think you, they're mostly Shia, was that right? They were yeah. mostly from more impoverished communities, right? So they actually, in some ways, it was a step up for some of these people, right, to go to West Africa, to climb the, to climb the sort of racial ladder, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Uh, they were... Um, mostly uh, Lebanese Shias, like more impoverished. Um, uh, you know, a lot of um, many Maronites, you know, Maronite Christian Lebanese uh, ended up migrating to the Americas, uh, North and South America. Like I'm sure that many of our, many of you know, whoever our listeners are know that that there's a quite a robust, actually a, a massive, like in millions um, community in um, Latin America, especially like in Brazil and and um, Colombia, even in Mexico, mm-hmm. sort of in. But but that's a predominantly pre- majority kind of Maronite sort of phenomenon. West Africa is sort of very predominantly a Shia, like Lebanese Shia communities, mm-hmm. um, who established themselves there. And like John was saying, this was an opportunity to like climb the racial ladder. Um, in in Lebanon, Shias were like at the bottom of the ladder, um, both treated by the Lebanese and also by the French, who like preferred to, um, you know, um, preferred to give sort of uh, Lebanese Maronites uh, and some Sunnis kind of control, um, especially Maronites, because they saw like this cultural link, uh, you know, similar religious interests. Um, and Shias were, even in the Ottoman Empire, were sort of considered like a, a backwater. So here you have these like Lebanese men who start taking, you know, who start taking on these, uh, they were kind of acted certain as like middlemen, like they kind of occupied this like traitor position between the, the like French colonial order and then local Senegalese. But this of course created a lot of tension because 
here you have these foreigners, aka the Lebanese, who are sort of coming in and taking advantage of the situation with the French and taking opportunities away from local West Africans. Um, and West Africans in that context are um, are being taken advantage of, discriminated against. Um, Lebanese are given sort of um, loans from like French colonial banks to start their businesses versus like local West Africans. But then there are also these interesting cases of like intermarriage and a generation of like African Lebanese children. So it's, uh, you know, they're like really kind of these different layers. And then if, when, when you go to like Lebanon and Syria, um, the West African soldiers who were there, the Tirailleurs Senegalais, who were like, uh, this, you know, they were really the 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 enforcement of order. Uh, so whenever there were like any kind of revolts or rebellion, they would be the first ones who were dispatched to like to um, um, to sort of um, to crush those rebellions. Um, and so they were positioned, they were in these positions of authority and seen somewhat as like these auxiliaries to the colonial order or proxy colonizers. But then at the same time, there were also some cases of like intermarriage where they married some Syrian women and those women went back to um, West Africa with their tirailleur husbands. Um, and many of them were also Muslims. So it sort of like begs, it, asks, it begs us to ask these questions of like what, what did this mean? Like, what was the relationship like? There's a there's like this tiny hidden cemetery in Beirut that has that has um, you know buried uh, these Tiraya soldiers, and many of them have Muslim names. So, lots of questions. Do you say a lot of Lebanese settled in Senegal and Dakar? Did did they go the other direction? Did did the Senegalese ever settle in Lebanon? Like, I mean, like own homes? Were they allowed to do that kind of? No, not really. I mean, because they were like a, a, a colonial army. When Once the mandate finished, they all went back. Very few stayed, like maybe very, very few. But, but they all went back to their homes in West Africa or like went to France. Like there was, you know, some of them, um, some tiraya. There was like a system. Anyway, this is like a tangent. But the French sort of had this, this, uh, system of even um, classifying and um, sort of dividing uh, local West Africans into different categories of privilege. Um, and one of them was this uh, category of originaire, which is like those inhabitants of the original four communes, the French four communes, one of them being Saint-Louis. And so if, if, you had the status, you could then sort of get French citizenship. Anyway, let's just say the French had hierarchies for everything and mm -hmm. everyone. And they really sort of uh, um, changed depending on like place and context and things. Uh, but yeah, they... It is quite interesting, actually. When uh, I mean, thinking of Brian's question, you know, sort of like the afterlives of this, right? Because I remember when I was researching my first book and spending a lot of time in West Africa, and I hadn't, it was very naive, but I think I hadn't expected to see a lot of Middle Eastern people in West Africa. A lot of people, I mean, a lot of people thought I was Lebanese. Um, and not just in the Francophone countries, you know, in Nigeria as well. And um, Oh, yeah. And there is, there is a very, very now, very well-established, you know, generations deep uh, community of, of sort of um, shopkeepers, traders, business people, you know, of Lebanese origin in West Africa. But you don't see the opposite. 
in Lebanon or in Syria today, necessarily. You don't see large communities of kind of established West Africans. And I, I mean, I guess, as you've already addressed, the, the, the kind of the reasons for that. But um, Yeah, no, I mean, there are, in Lebanon, there's certainly a community of African migrants and, uh, you know, especially of migrant workers, those communities are more recent. Um, and there's, there's, there's quite a big community of, you know, migrant domestic workers who are, you know, uh, infamously and well documented as being grossly mistreated in Lebanon and like other parts of the Middle East. Um, but in terms of, like you were saying, a generation's deep community, um, you don't really find um, sort of the the same as as the Lebanese um, in West Africa. What's interesting is is they're really not as as well studied as like the Lebanese in South America, for example, who, you know, it's sort of, I'm sure like you've heard of like, oh, like this, whatever. Carlos Slim is like originally Lebanese, mm -hmm. Mexican, right? Shakira. Or Shakira, yeah. Where is, the, where is the West African Shakira? That's, I think that's what everyone really wants to know. Here, Dahlia. Are you gonna, are you gonna find her? So I think this is also an interesting question that I'm sort of exploring is, is this question of, uh, you know, what kind of thinking about, I mean, this is sort of beyond the spoke, scope of my project, but thinking about like, why were the Lebanese in um, South America so quote unquote well assimilated, right? All of them sort of learned Spanish and many intermarried and there are millions more of them now than there were initially. And sort of just thinking through, like, what were the racial connotations of that? I mean, clearly there was, uh, if you think about the community in West Africa, it hasn't, like, grown as much as you would expect for how long these generations have been there. Um, and, and, you know, part of these issues are racial issues. There's racism involved here. I mean, uh, you don't have that... There are some Lebanese who do learn the local languages, Wolof, or, um, you know, uh, in Nigeria, Yoruba, or some of the other languages. There are some of them, but there are others who don't, who just sort of get by on French or English, depending on, on you know, what country they're in, um, and, and, you know, really mean, like, and still speak Arabic, uh, Whereas a lot of the communities in South America, like a lot of them don't speak Arabic anymore. They've sort of, um, I mean, the communities in South America are have been there longer, for sure. But, uh, you know, it really raises questions that we have to ask ourselves, especially, also, I mean, Lebanon. Like if anyone's been to Lebanon, it's like notorious for its racism and discrimination. Um, and like, I'm Lebanese. So like, I'm I'm saying it, like it's, it's bad against, um, you know, uh, not only like black folk, I mean, the, the anti-black racism in Lebanon is like a, is really bad. Um, but, and it's also discriminatory against so many others, like, you know, our, uh, the, the record with Palestinian refugees is really, uh, atrocious as is with Iraqi and, um, Syrian refugees now. And, uh, well, the way the Shia were... Wow, it's like really... This is bad. <laughs> Lebanon has like major issues. Well, it's also really sad right now because it's uh, it's going through some 
really tough times, fuel shortages, like what I'm sure our Middle East, whoever our Middle East listeners are, but well, all well, of you know. We still haven't figured out who they are. We're still, <laughs> well, they, I'm sure they're all caught up. But um, We know we have a few listeners because they all several people wrote in to say how much they loved Brian the IT guy on the first episode. <laughs> so we know that we have at least like four or five listeners. Oh. <laughs> but they're, and they're all fans of yours, Brian. Oh, we got to do better than this, John. <laughs> we do. We do. So we have a segment here on this uh, podcast that we call, uh, Have You Tried Plugging It In? Uh, we didn't warn you about this. Uh, so this is, as you can tell, the name of the podcast is Middle East 2.0. It's an IT themed. We have Brian, the IT guy. So we have this segment at the end where we call that we call, Have You Tried Plugging It In? And the basic concept is, as you know, every time you get an IT guy to try to help you with something, that's the first thing they say, because they think you're an idiot and that you haven't tried something really basic. We also uh, ask, have you tried rebooting it, you know? Well, you know, right. There are many variations of that. Um, Brian likes to tell me every time I have a problem, he, he likes to use this term picnic, which means problem in chair, not in computer. Um, but anyway, so, yes. <laughs> very, very clever. It's very clever. It's very clever. Um, he's a clever guy. If only some of that genius was used towards, like, actually useful things like fixing our website when we need it. Um, <laughs> But it's okay. Uh, so we have this segment called, have you tried plugging it in? And the basic idea is, is that what is, you know, what is that really obvious thing that everyone in your field is missing? You know, or you can answer the question however you want. Like, was there that moment, that aha moment where you thought, wow, here's this really obvious question that I'm missing that has kind of opened up a whole, uh, you know, a whole field of research for you? Or, you know, what is it that, that you think uh, is an obvious question that is not being asked, that should be getting asked? Um, I mean, I think you get the idea. That sort of, you know, have you, you know, have you tried plugging it in? Have you tried plugging it in? Um, Alternatively, uh, you can use this moment uh, if you have any IT issues that you want to ask Brian about. That's also okay. Yeah. I suggest, <laughs> I suggest you know, try rebooting it first if you have any problems <laughs> with your computer. Oh, man. I always have IT issues. It's actually really funny. So do we. Husband. It's funny that you said that. So do we. And somehow ours never get resolved. I don't know why that is. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, Brian, are you the IT guy for Middle East Center for for other or like for the university? I do a few departments. Middle East is one of my departments that I help out. Yeah. Oh, you have a few departments. Wow, that must be fun. I'm sure, you get all kinds of interesting requests. Yeah. Um. So. Which one's your wow. favorite, Brian? Middle East Center. <laughs> he know he knows what side his gun is butted on. <laughs> Absolutely, they got they got they got free tea bags here. You know, sure, we do we do give them free tea and coffee. Anyway, Dolly, I'm sorry, you're the star of the show. Yeah, it may not no, be obvious to you. But. No, please, these are you know this is all the good stuff here. So what are we all what are we all missing? What are we all missing? When we, when we talk about West Africa, Lebanon, Syria. Uh, the obvious question that I think we're missing is that. In Middle East studies, we tend to kind of narrowly focus in within the Middle East uh, and don't do a good of a job at looking at, you know, um, other regions um, like West Africa mm. or looking at the relationship between Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East, which have, um, you know, very serious uh, 
consequences on sort of uh, the impact today, like in our societies, that the the kind of relationships that form sort of over time. I think part of the problem is that you know Africa has uh, is generally understudied, uh, unfortunately, and and not uh, given its weight, especially when we think of the Islamic world. Right. Um, yeah. So basically, that sounds like an endorsement for, it sounds like you're laying the groundwork for a Beirut to Dakar rally. <laughs> yes! That's <laughs> somewhere, you know. It would be closer. We need to take, so, Paris, we need to take Paris completely out of the equation. Yeah, we need, we do. So Brian is going to take his motorcycle and ride from Dakar to with with Jamal Elias. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with Jamal Elias uh, from Dakar to Cairo, and then from Cairo across. Working in a grant. You know what? What you what you don't realize before we wrap up. What one thing you don't you may not realize, and this has been a really interesting um, conversation. But um, there's actually, is there something else that you that you and Brian actually have in common, uh, which is not just your not just Dakar, but you're both recent recent parents. Because oh. uh, oh. you, of course, ten, had your ten years recent. So. Well, no, 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 Brian. I'm not thinking, <laughs> that's not what I'm thinking about. Uh, so Dahlia, you, you know, you you recently had your um, your beautiful baby boy. Girl. Girl, 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 that's what I meant to say. Um, <laughs> and and Brian and Brian has recently had a chicken. He's, <laughs> he's become he has a whole new lease on parenthood. Yeah, it's the same thing, you know, a chicken. Yeah, that's my beautiful baby girl. <laughs> His chicken is growing so quickly, it's unbelievable. Because we so, we did a publicity yeah. shot with him and and the, and the and the chicken sitting on his shoulder, and the chicken's already like twice as big now. Wow. So what's your advice on getting chickens? Do you recommend it? You know, our neighbors have chickens. We we recently moved to California and legit, the neighbors down the street have a chicken coop. Yeah. And it looks awesome. I mean, we, 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 you know, it's really not as hard as you think it was. It would it, be to uh, to raise a chicken. I mean, it's a lot easier than raising a, a kid. So, uh. <laughs> so you just have the one chicken? So, well, we had two, but the hawk took one. So it was, it was oh. hard to breed them. Yeah. That's so you have to be careful, careful about that. So, and then you have to plan for winter. Now, if you're in California, you don't have to worry about the winter so much. But here in Philly, we still have to worry. You know, it does. Get yeah, hard. you do. Yeah. Uh, our next podcast, we could talk about chickens in the Middle East. How's that? Oh yes. There's a lot. Has should. anyone written about that? <laughs> I'm sure you can find someone. I'm sure we can. <laughs> If you if you're listening out there and you know anything about chickens in the Middle East, uh, you may have just like, volunteered to be our next guest. The chicken is good there. I have to say, the chicken tastes different in the Middle East. Mm. It's the it's, it's, it's I'm, I'm sure it's the same in Iran. You know, it's just the way. No, the chicken is horrible in Iran. Actually. It's horrible. <laughs> what? I'm fine with the American chicken, thanks. Um, Brian's chicken is going to be amazing. I can't wait until. Are we going to? Are we allowed to? Are we, can I talk about your your baby that way? If you like, want to? <laughs> oh, are you going to eat? This the is what it's come to, John. Are you going to eat the chicken, or does or does oh, the no, chicken no. give you crazy. egg? We're gonna we're gonna eat it live on air. Oh on my god! After after her sister was taken by the hawk, I've sworn off all meat. So. Oh. Yeah, it was kind of my fault. So I, I was in the garage and I should have. Should have been more careful. Should have, oh, I should have that. Yeah, that's sad. 
Well, this, that is, makes this one chicken that much more special. Does she have eggs? Does she, is she, Soon. are you like, Soon? yeah? It takes a while, you know. She's, she's oh, soon. She's wow. A, she, she, you call a spring chicken, so uh, we're still waiting on that. <laughs> It's almost like waiting. Have... It's almost like waiting for a website that never comes. Oh, John! Yeah. You know all about waiting, Brian. Um, our guest. Sorry, Dolly. Go ahead. No, I was just thinking about those farm fresh eggs from Brian's chicken. Soon, soon. That 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 will be the payment for being on our podcast. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's true. Yes. From now on, we're paying That's everyone in eggs. That's the best we can do around here. <laughs> our guest. Exactly, exactly. Our guest today has been uh, the incredible Dahlia Zane, who is coming soon to a university near you. She's going to be your amazing (laughs) history professor one of these days. Uh, So when are you finishing your PhD, do you think? Forever. Never. I don't know. Never. (laughs) No. Like 2025. Okay, well, sign up now for wherever Dahlia is teaching, because you will be learning a lot about uh the the wider middle east uh middle east a whole in fact you might even say middle east 2.0 a whole new understanding of the middle east that involves uh west africa as well the project at least for now i believe is called traversing empire lebanese Shi'is and tirailleurs senegalais in french senegal and lebanon 1920 to 1946 Dali, it's been such a pleasure having you thank you so much for having me and thanks for that plug and it was you know a real pleasure an honor to be here today and thank you very much for this opportunity and for whoever's listening out there yeah just thank you to anyone who's listening really is <laughs> we really appreciate it brian any final well, words no no once again why am i here john no no <laughs> until next time folks that's oh, all for once brian has nothing to say all right it's been great to have you uh, thank you very much. Our guest today has been Dalia Zane. My name is John Gazvinian. Uh, I've been your host here with Brian the IT Guy, your co-host. You've been listening to Middle East 2.0. We look forward to having you next time. You have been listening to Middle East 2.0, a podcast from the Middle East Center at the University of Pennsylvania. To find out more about our programming, please visit mec.sas.upenn.edu. You can also find us on Facebook, as well as Twitter and Instagram at UPenMEC.